The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 4, verses 14 through 23. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold its wonderful truths. And we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Today is our last day in the book of Philippians. I've enjoyed walking with you uh, over this summer as we've looked at this book more deeply, and I hope God has blessed you and encouraged you why we've been doing this. And Next week, we begin a new series on the book of Psalms, and we're going to spend 10 weeks leading us all the way up to Advent as we look at a number of different Psalms, and I hope to encourage us and bless us as a congregation as we look at the different ways in the Psalms that God speaks to us through primarily through poetry. Now, if you were here last week, you know that I started the sermon, um, the same sermons, you, or let me put it this way. If you were here last week, you're thinking, Jim, did you forget we already read these verses? Yes, we already read these verses, but if you recall, last week, I said that we were going to pull this section apart a little bit. And last week, we looked at contentment, gospel contentment, and today, we're going to look at gospel generosity. And these two themes run throughout these last 10 sections, or 10 verses of this section of Scripture. So we're going to pull them apart today and focus in on gospel generosity. And last week, I started with... Uh, Les Miserables, right? And you remember the Bishop Muriel, and um, we talked a little bit about him, and I want to come back to that story again today and start there as well, because you'll remember that the bishop was a man that Victor Hugo really sets the bishop to be a man after God's own heart, a man with a, a gentle and kind disposition who really learned to put the interests of others before his own, right? And we saw this last week when the bishop gave away his mansion, his giant mansion, to those at the, to, to the, um, the church, in a sense, to replace the hospital. So he took the very small house that was operating as a hospital and gave his mansion to, the hosp- uh, to, to become the hospital. So we, know, we have this little character development in the very early pages of Les Miserables. But the, the story itself, though, is, and if you've, uh, whether you've read the book or you've seen the movie or the play, you know that the, story, that the main character of the story is Jean Valjean. And we meet Jean Valjean, basically, he's a man who's just really angry, and he's angry because he's been, he has spent the last 19 years in prison. And you might remember that he was in prison for 19 years because 
Uh, well, originally he was sent to prison for five years. Um, and because he was trying to break out of the prison, he was sentenced to a total of 19 years. And the reason for that sentence, that original sentence, was simply because he stole a loaf of bread for his niece who was starving. You know, at his release from prison, Jean Valjean struggled deeply with anger and guilt and fear. Life outside of prison had turned into endless struggle for him. And, it, and his life seemed rather hopeless and, un, and unbearable. No one, in a sense, no one would hire him for a job. He couldn't find work. No one would provide a place for him to lay his head. Because in that day, in some ways similar to our own day, he had a document that, that he had to present in order to work or a document to present that, to rent the room. And on that document, it declared that he was an ex-convict. And much like today, people didn't want to rent or provide jobs to somebody who had been in prison. And so this man was struggling. He was angry. He was afraid. Um, and he wasn't sure what was going to happen to him. And so he finds himself, in the story, he finds himself at Bishop Muriel's house. Um, the bishop takes him in and says, you can spend a night here um, just to give him a place off the streets. And during, but during the night, if you know the story, Jean Valjean sneaks into the bishop's house, into the kitchen area, and he steals the silver, that is the silverware, this very expensive dinery. And he flees into the night. He's quickly captured by the police, and the police realize that this man had stolen from the bishop. And so they return him back to the bishop, and they say, look, this man has stolen your silver. And the bishop looks at him and says, oh, you must be mistaken. This man hasn't stolen this. I've given it to him. And he says, and he actually, he forgot two things. He forgot these two silver lampstands or candlestands, right? And he gives them to, to him as well. Now, you can imagine, if that had been you, that Jean Valjean was totally amazed and transformed because of that interaction with the bishop. This act of mercy and generosity by the bishop permanently and forever changes Jean Valjean. And the reason for that is because he's confronted with his own sin and his own need for mercy that only Christ can bring. And through this experience, he becomes a man of generosity and mercy because he's experienced generosity from another, and ultimately, he's experienced, as he comes to faith, he experiences the generosity of God toward him. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of generosity, but usually, when I, when I say that, well, what does come to your mind? Just take a moment and think about it. Well, we're talking about generosity, what comes to your mind? Now, I'm sure most of you are thinking, probably, right? Oh, well, when I think of generosity, I think of using my gifts to help others. Or I think of using my talents to serve in different ways. And every one of you would say, nope, that is not what I was thinking of when you said generosity. Really, Jim, what I was thinking of is money, is finances, because that's what we almost always think of when we talk about generosity. And honestly, if I was in your situation issues, if someone said that to me, that's what I would think as well. I'd be thinking about finances or money. And yet generosity means this, this is a definition, I think it's from Webster's, that says, generosity means a willingness to give help or support, especially more than is usual or expected. This means that generosity includes more than finances, but certainly not less. Some of us can get a little bit uncomfortable because we treat money like politics and religion, or at least if you're from the part of the country I am from, politics, religion, and money are not polite conversations around the table. So it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable even to be in a church when we're talking about generosity. 
And I understand that this topic can make us feel uncomfortable for a host of reasons, but I would suggest at least in this context, that is in the context of this book of Philippians, the, in these last verses, that we start our conversation today not with money, but with God. More specifically, the generosity of God towards us. Surprisingly, as I was taking time this week to look at this, this is not an area that I can find a lot of resources on. Uh, we can talk about the generosity of God and grace, we can talk, and these are all true things, but just the generosity of God and how he relates to us is not something that readily comes up in any books that I could find, other than if I go to Tim Keller and, and look at some of his resources. But Tim does a great job in a lot of these areas. Look, but here's the thing I want us to start with, and I think this is just a basic understanding of Scripture. God sets the standard for generosity, and by nature, God gives. And not just, God doesn't give just enough. He gives abundantly, he gives extravagantly, and he gives lavishly. And this is what really undergirds this section of Philippians. And so I want to start today by looking at the generosity of God that's on display here in these 10 verses or so. Now, you have to understand these believers, this Philippian church, had practiced a life of giving to Paul and others. We see that very clearly in the text. Despite severe trials and extreme poverty, the churches of Macedonia, of which the Philippian church is one, had joyfully given to the Christians in Jerusalem, Paul told us in 2 Corinthians, that they, this church had given not just to Paul, but they had been instrumental in giving throughout the Mediterranean world to support believers around around the Mediterranean world who were in need, particularly the Christians in Jerusalem who were going through a severe drought. Now, if you were here a few weeks back, we talked a little bit about this, or at least I touched on that. But here's the thing I think Paul is wanting us to see. These believers in their giving, they weren't simply following the, they weren't simply, simply making this up, right? They had an example that they were following. That example that they were following is the example of Jesus. And so in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about their giving, to these Christians in Jerusalem, he says this. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The apostle recognized the immensity of God's generosity of grace here. When he wrote this to the church, right, he's basically saying, you became rich in God's generous generosity towards you. Now we know that he's not talking about finances here, right? It's very clear. No, he's saying we became rich in grace. We became rich in mercy. We became rich in faith. We became rich in forgiveness, which is all ours. Paul says this is all belongs to all us, every one of us who are united to Jesus Christ through faith. We become rich in Jesus, and what does Jesus get in return? Paul says, chapter 8, that Jesus gets poverty. Jesus becomes poor for us. Now, if you've been here through the summer, we understood this, right? We, in, in, in Philippians 2, Paul, or Paul says the same thing, basically the same to, thing to us. Jesus became poor for us. In Philippians 2, chapter 5, Paul says this. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus did this to die for our sins so that all who trust in him can be forgiven. And that we, on that day of resurrection, the day of resurrection, we may then experience his wealth and his security 
for all eternity. That's what we receive in Christ. We receive his riches, he receives our poverty. The Philippian church grasped the meaning of Paul's teaching here. And they willingly and generously gave to Paul out of a love for him and out of a commitment to Christ. God's wealth of generosity is summed up by Paul in verse 19. And that, and this is what Paul says, and that God will meet our every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God's riches and glory are open to us through his son. He has opened, in a sense, his treasury to all who are united to Jesus through faith. Which leads Paul to give a blessing in verse 23. So may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God's grace and riches flowed into the Philippians' lives and ours because his son paid the price to clear our debt. That is, Jesus canceled our debt. And now, because he's canceled our debt through faith, he leads us into our own inheritance, right? And in actuality, Paul says it's not our inheritance, it's Jesus' inheritance that he shares with us. So when you go to Galatians, Paul talks about this more clearly, and he says, Jesus, that we are co-heirs with Christ, because Christ, in essence, is our big brother. God's abundant generosity undergirds all of Scripture, from creation to the fall to redemption and to glorification. God is a generous God, and, it un- and he undergirds Paul's understanding of in- generosity, and it should, Scripture should define our understanding of generosity as well. God is generous, and he will supply our every need, Paul says. Now notice in that verse 19, right? Paul didn't say some needs. Paul didn't say he would only supply your spiritual needs. Paul didn't say your physical needs. He said he will supply all our needs in Christ Jesus. Look, church, we need to live with the faith of Jesus and believing and trusting that God will care for us as his children even as we might care for our own children, or you might care for your parents or even a friend, God will care for us and provide for us. That's the basic message that Paul is saying here in verse 19, that God will provide your every need, whatever that is. We, like the Philippians, are called to a life of gospel generosity because Jesus gave himself fully for us. Jesus gave himself fully for us And because God has been generous with us, we should also be a people with generous hearts. Now, keeping this in mind, that generosity undergirds not just this passage, but all Scripture, let's pick up Paul's train of thought in these last few verses. Excuse me. Paul begins this section by referring back to chapter 1 and verse 5, where he says, we entered into this partnership of the gospel. Now, it seems that this church was the only regular contributor to Paul's ministry in the early days. That is, from the very beginning of his his ministry in Macedonia, this church had joined with him because they had experienced, again, firsthand the gospel and had changed, and this is important, the gospel had changed not just their beliefs, the gospel had changed their lives. This church gave and continued to support and encourage and bless Paul for the last 12 years which is the span between when Paul was writing or first met that church or planted that church and when he's writing this letter. This was not a wealthy church, and I think we need to keep that in mind. This was not a wealthy church, and as we've seen over the course of the summer, this was a church that Paul described again in the, in the letter to the Corinthians as a church that was in extreme poverty, extreme poverty. 
Now, I don't know that I've ever been in extreme poverty. I don't, I, my guess is there's probably very few, if any of us have ever could say that we've ever been in extreme poverty. And yet, Paul is describing this church in Philippi as a church that lived in extreme poverty. It's as if Paul is saying this church was the poor of the poor, and yet they were so captivated by the gospel that they willingly, generously, and sacrificially gave so the gospel could go out. Paul relied on them, and they were a great source of encouragement and blessing to him as they helped spread the gospel throughout Europe. That is, they freed up Paul to be the minister, to go to places and speak into uh, communities, into synagogues, uh, wherever God was leading Paul to, to preach the gospel. They provide the resources for him to be able to do that. And I think it's important also to, to understand that when Paul began to work in a region, he did not ask for finances, right? Because of the cultural practices of his day, basically which were this, that um, if you were a philosophical teacher or a religious teacher or leader, you basically sold your services to the highest bidder. Paul was opposed to this, and he worked to distance himself from this cultural practice. So usually when Paul entered into a new city, he made his living, the, the scriptures tell us, he made his living by making tents. Or he received contributions from other churches that, had, that he had already established or, or had already been established, but he didn't take money from the churches he was working with because he did not want to be seen as benefiting somehow that his message was benefiting from that church that he was helping to establish. He made sure that the gospel message, in a sense, was a free message to demonstrate that he was not in the business to make money like many of his contemporaries. You know, this is true for us today as well. We do not exist as a church to make money. We preach and teach the full gospel freely, knowing that God changes hearts and lives and trusting that God will provide for our needs. Now, look, again, I'll say this. I know that some of you are uncomfortable when we talk about finances. And this is what I would say, and I think part of what Paul is teaching here as well, is if you're uncomfortable, you're feeling guilty, or you're feeling like compelled to give out of guilt or some other reason that's not from God, brothers, sisters, I'd encourage you, don't give. Don't give until you grasp that God has been generous to you. When you can grasp that, what Paul is teaching here, then you will give, and you'll give joyfully. Not out, of, not out of guilt, not out of compulsion, but you'll give joyfully because you'll under, begin to understand that God has given you so much in his son. And that, that I think if I could, I, I could walk off the podium right now and we could end, and that would be the truth of what Paul is saying. The basic truth here is that we give when we understand God's blessing that we receive through Christ. And because he is so generous to us, our hearts should be moved to give joyfully just as the Philippian church was. Look, throughout these last few verses, Paul enters into the world of business by using several Greek words that convey commercial or business transactions or even banking transactions, right? Words like partnership, giving and receiving, credit, and full payments all have connotations of business or banking. And it seems likely that on one level, Paul thought of, of the Philippians' financial contributions to him as a form of a business partnership. Now, on one level, it was a form of a business partnership. That is, Paul generally provided the labor while, they, while the Philippians provided the financial assistance or the financial backing. Of course, they were not the only church, in this case, that were providing financial backing for Paul in order for him to thrive in a Roman, under house arrest in Rome. 
Notice also in verse 17, I, I touch on this because I think it's, uh, it's strange, but it's also important for us to understand what Paul is saying here. In verse 17, there's a strange English translation of, uh, in the ESV, I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or the NIV translates it as, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Fruit here is the payment that the gift would bring the donors and be put to their credit. Or as one commentator says, their investment, the Philippians' investment, their giving is a spiritual investment entered as credit to the account of the Philippians. And this is an investment that will increasingly pay greater and greater dividends. Now look, Paul is not making this stuff up. He's just echoing what Jesus has already, been, has already taught, what he's already learned from Jesus. In Luke 14, Jesus says, whoever is generous to the poor will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Look, as Christians, as those who've put our faith in Christ, our good works are building up credit, Paul says, building up credit for us. And you've heard it this way, maybe. Um, it's as if when we do these good works, whether our, we give our finances, we use our resources for our talents, um, other areas where we're blessing the people of God, Paul says, and Jesus says, that we're storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. That we're storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven. Their giving is also, the Philippians' giving is also a sign of God's work and their maturity in the faith. And I think that's important to note here, right? This church had learned the gospel, and their giving was a sign that they were maturing in their faith because, they, again, they had come to the place where they understood the generosity of God to them through Christ. Church, when we live our lives out of the generosity of God towards us, we are blessed, so we in turn basically can be a blessing to others. When our generosity flows out to others, it's enduring fruit that pleases God. And through it, again, I'll say it, through it, we are storing up treasures for ourselves in heaven. We see this also clearly in verse 18. Paul switches from an emphasis on banking terminology to sacrificial imagery. He says, the gift I have received from you is a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is Old Testament sacrificial imagery to describe the gift sent to Paul. And Paul is basically saying this, and I want you to hear this. Paul is basically saying, your gift is a sacrifice. It's like a sacrifice. When you give to the church of God, it is, in essence, a picture of a sacrifice that you're offering on the temple. And through your gift, and this is the amazing thing to me. Through your gift, God is exalted and God is honored. Your gift, Paul says, brings glory and pleasure to God. Think about that. In an offering, what happens in an offering? If it's, a, if it's an animal offering, even if it was a grain offering, it's being burnt on the, off, on the, on the um, tabernacle. What are you, I can't even think of the word of it right now. Altar. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> On the altar, and the smoke is rising up to heaven, and God is smelling, and he's pleased by that offering. And that's the picture Paul is showing us. Our gifts to the kingdom of God are like that sacrifice. It's rising up, and God is pleased, and he's blessed, and he's glorified in our offerings. Now, let me ask you this. Do you think of your giving as exalting God or bringing glory to God? That's what Paul is saying here, and I think it's so important that we grasp that understanding as well, that our giving, it's not just we do it out of because we're supposed to do it. We do it because it exalts and honors our, the king of heaven. 
It exalts our Savior. When we give, that's who we're exalting. We're not exalting ourselves. We're not lifting up this church. We're lifting up King Jesus through our giving. You know, the second thing I want us to see here in this, in verse 18 at least, is that That generosity, showing generosity through giving is also costly, right? Showing generosity through offering a sacrifice was costly. And I think it was David Strain, who's a pastor at a church in Mississippi, that said, give until you need to make adjustments to your lifestyle. Otherwise, you are just giving disposable income. You are just giving to the Lord your leftovers. When someone made an offering in the Old Testament, it was costly, Right? That's why there are levels of offerings. You gave a bull. If you had a lot of money, go out and buy the bull. You have a little bit of money, you get the, the turtle dove or the pigeon. You have less money, you offer a grain, even a grain offering. Right? There are levels based upon what people could afford. Right? So the, the, the point here Paul is saying is he's encouraging this. That, look, yes, giving is costly. It's going to hurt. It will hurt. It should hurt. If we're going to honor and bring praise and glory to God, then we need to give not just out of our abundance, but we need to give to a point where it is costly because giving according to Scripture is costly for us. Now, brothers and sisters, Jesus says, again, the same thing in Luke. Um, I just want to read this quickly. Luke 21 says, And he, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury, and he saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So Jesus said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. Now, we understand that, right? Did she really put in more money than all, than the rich people? No, of course not. She gave probably, a, you know, less than a tenth of what they were giving. How did she give more than all? Because it cost her more to give than it did the rich. And that's what Jesus' example for us here, that's what Paul's example for us, that's what this church has provided for us, the Philippian church has provided an example for us. They gave out of their extreme poverty, Paul says. And yet somehow Paul says, you've given me so much that I don't need anything else from you. I don't need another gift. You have provided way above and beyond what I need. The principle that Jesus and Paul revealed is that giving is pleasing to God when it costs us something. So are you practicing sacrificial giving like the church in Philippi? Are we practicing that as a congregation? You know, they, the church in Philippi, they could do this because they understood that God, and they believed, not just understood, but they believed deeply to the core of their soul that God would provide their every need. They could give out of their extreme poverty because they knew that God was, was going to take care of them. We are to be, above all, a generous people because God has been generous to us. Look, God is the most joyful, generous person in the universe. He demonstrated his radical generosity by giving his son to be our crucified and risen Lord. Jesus reveals this same generosity by becoming poor so that we might have treasure, that we might have the treasure of the king and not just the king, but his kingdom as well. As Christians, we of all people should be the most generous people on the planet because we have received and experienced gospel generosity through our Savior. Generosity is powerful, and it can be life-changing, both for those on the receiving end and those doing the giving. Let me encourage you, let me encourage us, as disciples of Jesus, reflect on what you treasure. 
What is your treasure? What, what's the most valuable thing to you? If it's your money, let me suggest that your priorities are in the wrong place. You know, what do, you, what do your heart and mind fixate on? In those times of silence, taking a shower in the morning, got a little bit of downtime, where, where, do your mind, where, where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Are you worried about your finances? Are you focused on your finances? Paul's answer to those questions that our mind needs to go in these areas on, to Jesus. It's Jesus and the promise that he will meet our every need for us. That's where our contentment comes from. We saw that last week. But also, even in our generosity, we can give because Jesus will meet our needs. Look, are you trusting and believing that Jesus will supply your every need? Or are you stubbornly hanging on to your finances or to your gifts or to your time because you don't really believe that Jesus will provide for you? When we hang on to our finances, when we hang on to our time and our talents, um, our gifts, we are saying to God, I don't think you're going to take care of me. I don't think you're going to provide for me. I can't trust you to let these things go. I need to take care of myself. That's what we're saying. Church, true commitment to the king means true commitment to the kingdom. And one way that commitment is seen is in our giving to support the work of the local church. And my prayer for us today is for us to grow in gospel generosity as we experience and know more and more the wonder and the beauty and the generosity of our God who will supply our every need. That's our confidence. That's our hope. That's our trust. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are a God who doesn't just provide contentment for us and life through our circumstances, through Jesus, but you also encourage us to bless others through gospel generosity. And Lord, I pray that money is a fickle thing, and it is hard, and it is, Jesus has more to say about it than anything else, and we know that it can be so controlling and have so, so much power over our lives. So help us as a church to learn to release those things, to release these idols to you, and believe like Jesus did that you will provide for our every need because we've received that need. Our needs have been met fully and completely in Christ, both in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.